you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We'll be starting in verse 14. I will read to verse 27. seconds so I can drink my water. Luke 22, starting verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined that table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is the body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after that, he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it be who was going to do this? Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority have them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, like always, for your word, Father God. We thank you for speaking to our hearts. We thank you, Father God, for teaching us that which is right, that which is true, that which is honorable to you, Father God. Thank you for the privilege of being disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank you, O God, for the work and grace of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the illuminating truth of Scripture, Father God, that's ever revealing to us just how incredible you are. God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift that comes down from above. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Broken leaders, as we're going to start, as we've been speaking about the church, I'm going to be speaking over the next at least three weeks, maybe four weeks, on the relationship between church leaders and the congregation. And it's not just for our congregation, it's for wherever we are. There are certain dynamics that go between leader and lady that the scriptures define for us. There's a certain relationship that goes on that we all need to know our role and our part. Uh, the Bible says much about our part in the church. And when I say our part, I mean membership. I want to be specific about that. And we'll be speaking about that as the weeks to come because church membership is of the utmost importance to the soul of the Christian. It has nothing to do about fudging books and they say, oh, we've got so many people in the church membership. It has nothing to do with that. 
church membership that says to God, Amen. I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm in all the way. I have no reservations. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to do the greatest work you can in my heart. Did that speak to you just now when I said that? Do you want to be everything that God wants you to be? You can't do it without being a member of the Christian church. Now, that sounds pretty dogmatic, but this is where God does His work. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are represented in this room. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are represented in each person in the body of Christ. And we come together and we encourage one another. And those gifts are up and operating, whether it's a pastor, whether it's preachers, whether it's teachers, exhorters, and so on and so forth. We come together to build ourselves up in the faith. And when we live as one foot in and one foot out kind of Christianity, we don't receive everything God has for us. So I want to address that because it's something I've seen over the years and I've been speaking on church dynamics over the summertime and so I do want to uh, address this issue because it is of the utmost importance. I want to encourage you with something. Do you have a favorite author? Christian author. Do you have a favorite Christian band? A certain kind of Christian music? Do you have a, a favorite Christian or biblical uh, character? Do you know anybody who's really been ever used mightily by God? I can tell you right now, everything you said yes to, they're going to belong to a church. There are no lone rangers. None. Everything we've just mentioned, every great man or woman of God that ever has been used by God has been a healthy member in the Christian community. Anybody who's tried to do it outside that way, they run in vain. The man who separates himself, the Bible says, seeks his own desires. So we're going to be addressing that. And I, I want to, I, when it comes to membership, it's, it's, a, it's a dual relationship between the leader and the congregation, or the leaders and the congregation, because we both hold each other accountable. Leaders and the congregation both hold each other accountable. A leader, the Bible doesn't give a leader uh, the authority to run roughshod over the sheep. We just saw that in the scripture, and I'll get into it. Unfortunately, many sheep allow leaders to run over them. It's not supposed to be that way. Anybody in the congregation at any time over any concern, I don't want to say a complaint, let it be a concern, has every right to speak to a leader over anything, whether it's doctrine, theology, money, personality, character, morals, anything. As soon as God calls me to be in a pulpit, I am accountable to all men. I can't be concerned of hiding things. My life is an open book. A leader's life is an open book. It is very important to understand. But likewise, to be a member of a church, a healthy member in a healthy church with healthy leadership, it's a leader's responsibility, not his right, 
to be able to say, how's your life going? I recognize that I've been praying for you, I should say, and I'm recognizing there might be something going on in your life, and I speak to you. I see something. We have that responsibility. It's not a right. Something God gives us, because God's more concerned for you than I ever could be. God loves you. I love you guys. But God loves you much more than I ever could love you. So these are the things we're going to speak about over the weeks to come, about these dynamics between a relationship between leader and uh, the congregation. And I want to assure you that the secular world in leadership positions, there's usually a distance between the worker and the boss, we'll say. There's usually a formality uh, it's very formal, you know, you, you only get so close. On a whole, that's the way it is, especially in corporate America. But the Christian church does not run that way. We do everything up front and close, as a shepherd is with a sheep. To be a good shepherd, you can't be 20 miles away. You have to be there with your eyes on the sheep that you know each one by name. Very important very close, close, face-to-face, heart-to-heart relationship between leadership and the congregation. It's a relationship between two parties that should bring joy. It actually should be very profitable. I want to read a text from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. I'm going to wait a moment. Maybe Jackie can pull that up. I didn't give it to you this morning. I'll be speaking on this text in the weeks to come. It's not today's text. Hebrews 13, verse 18. Okay. Aha. Uh-huh. Verse 17. Sorry. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give account to God. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's important to realize that the relationship, the dynamics between leadership and the congregation is something that should be profitable. It's something that should be joyful. It's something that should be edifying to the soul. It's something that should be happy. It should be delightful. It should be thriving. Even when things spoken about are challenging. It should be a father-mother relationship. Paul often called himself a father. And actually in the same sense he called himself a mother in the faith of the Thessalonians. And these are kind of roles that the Bible defines a leader. I'll be speaking more about the role of the congregation next week or the week after that. Today I'm going to speak specifically, I will address from only one text. So there's many in the New Testament that addresses the role of a leader. I will just use the one to get to I believe the most important point of how we do leadership. The Bible says much about it, but how do we do it? And Jesus gives us a great example. You don't do it like the world. Whatever you do, don't do it the way the world does it. This is the kingdom of God. It's the house of my Father. And I'm going to show you how to do it. If you want to be great, I'll show you. How many people want to be great in the kingdom of God? Are you sure? (laughs) This is Christ. Okay, let's get it. Luke 22, starting with the 24th verse. 
dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And that's interesting. Let me give you some preliminary remarks before we get into the text. Who is their greatest? Do you know the text we just read before this one? Jesus just told these very same disciples, someone's going to betray me tonight. And simultaneously, at the same time, they're wondering who's going to get the best seat at the table at the Passover. Do you sense maybe a little being a little indifferent to the master? Like, did he say something? What did he say? Someone's going to kill him? Where's he going? Who's going to get the best seat? And it's important for us to know that because Jesus, only Jesus is great. Amen? Period. That's it. There are no great disciples. That's it. There's only one great Savior, one great God. The rest of us are just in line following Him. Period. That is it. But this comes, who is the greatest, comes side by side with who is the worst. Jesus just said, the worst is Judas. He, He's going to deceive me. He's going to betray me. He's going to deny me. It's very interesting that the question comes at this time. Uh, The question is actually given twice by the disciples here in chapter 9. And it's significant to know because it gets at the heart of the human desire for recognition. Human pride. People love to be seen, heard, known, desired, sought after, but especially in religious matters. People want to be known as those who are real close to God. Real holy. Seek me out. I know God. I'll give you all the answers to life. I know people paying all sorts of money to go all around the world to hear this one gentleman or this one woman as though they got a crystal ball into their life. I know people that go and conjure up the dead to find out that maybe the dead can give them something, a word for the living. People seek people out. People love religious recognition. So sad. You know, Christ capitalizes on this to show this great point. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is going to show us who's great. The thought that this is taking place on the greatest demonstration of obedience to the will of God, this is great, there's no coincidences. I want you to know that. That this question is being asked. On one side, you have Judas is going to sell it out. If we read the other Gospels, he actually left right after this. Satan enters his heart, and he goes out to betray Christ. And the greatest act of obedience ever to take place... The greatest act of betrayal just took place. The greatest act of obedience is going to take place. That's Christ being crucified only in hours. We have this question going on. Who the greatest is? It's no coincidence. Understand something. All acts of obedience, all these great acts of obedience that we see in the Old Testament only exist because Jesus is going to the cross. Every Old Testament act of obedience, every Old Testament heroic event only takes place because Jesus, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is going to give his life. There would be no Noah, there would be no ark, there would be no preacher of righteousness unless Christ was absolutely going to come and die on a cross. Because the message he preached was preaching Jesus Christ. There's no Abraham leading his family to go to a land he does not know. There's no, there's no Abraham offering up his son Isaac unless there's a Christ offering up himself. 
There's no Moses staring down Pharaoh with ten plagues or Gideon going against an army of the Midianites with 300 men. There's no Samson taking down 30,000 Philistines. There's, there's no judges at all. There's no Joshua going into the promised land. There's no tearing down the walls of Jericho. There's no slingshot in the hand of the shepherd boy taking down the great Goliath unless Christ goes to the cross. That is it. And the reason why is because they all knew in their heart they were doing something greater than themselves. They were part of something greater. They knew something better was to come. Just like you and me know the better came 2,000 years ago. They knew something was coming. They knew someone was coming. They knew they were part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. But Jesus does point out here something. Something great to aspire to in God's eyes. And that's brokenness and humility before God. And that's the lesson these disciples, soon be apostles, are going to have to learn. They have no idea what's going on. That's why they ask such a stupid question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? You think they would ask that the day after he was crucified? When they all scattered like cowards? The great Peter, I would never deny you, he denies them in only a few hours. But the rest of their life, they will remember this night. And it humbles them. Verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus starts with a negative example and then a positive one. The negative one is from the secular world. We spoke about it, where the kings and the people in authority use their position in life, and it's still going on today, for personal power trips. People love power. What's that saying? Power corrupts ultimately. Ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Power is only meant for, is for God. All power is from God. All authority is truly from God. And if we're not close to God, we can never use any kind of power, especially power over another human being. And I don't want you to miss this. This is the point Jesus is, is making here because when they all, one consensus is thinking about who is the greatest, just think that these are the men that Jesus has chosen out of the world to turn the world upside down for him. But yet, they themselves in some small way want recognition, want power. Let me tell you something, in the Christian world when Christian leaders want recognition and power, they ruin people's lives. Ruin lives. Ruin lives. Exercise lordship is actually one word, and it means master, or to possess something, or to go out and possess the picture we have here is clear. The disciples know what this means. They got a, 
a clear picture of Herod. They got a clear picture of the Caesars. They understood what Jesus meant. That they exercised slavery over you. They're on such a power trip, they got their egos being stroked, that they, they make slaves of people. And with that attitude that they all have saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom, understand something. Jesus sees behind that, to the root of the problem, it's human pride, it's human pride that wants recognition, and sooner or later the whole people into some sort of bondage, slavery. Where the human conscience does not work anymore because it's been usurped by some kind of unscrupulous leader. The ancient world was gigantic with big ego trips, and, and the disciples knew that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Benefactor is another interesting word. You know what it means? It means kind, good, generous. But that doesn't sound like a bad thing. But what Jesus is saying here is that they call themselves good. They call themselves generous. The people aren't saying that. They're calling themselves that. They're taking the title of benefactor on. So we have this great uh, negative example on how not to serve God. Get off the ego trip. Get off the power trip. Get humble, and I'll show you if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus doesn't deny greatness. He disqualifies it. That's all. Listen. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you become like the youngest. And the leader as one who serves. Jesus uses a simple analogy to show the polar opposites of the approach to leadership in the Christian church and how the world does it. And subsequently, not just these, but all Christians should have this attitude. And it's one of humility. One of deep, abiding humility. A servant's role in life. Menial tasks. God's not looking for all-stars. I don't know if you know that. So if you're signing up for the all-star role, listen Forget about it. Not looking for any home run hitters either. This is a deliberate self-emptying of personal importance and personal ambition. That's what God's looking for. It's the very opposite of the self-exerting nature and rule of the world's leaders. The world's leaders serve themselves, this is what Jesus means, by ruling over others. That's how they serve themselves. It's a power trip. The Christian ruler or the Christian leader serves by emptying himself of himself, of any thoughts of self-importance, of personal ambition. It doesn't belong in the Christian church at all. Rulers of the world serve themselves by ruling over other people. Christian leaders serve others by emptying themselves. Verse 27. For who is greater, Jesus says? One who reclines at a table or one who serves? He gives the answer. Is it not the one who reclines at a table? In this world, he could have said. 
but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus gives them a trick question. Just from ordinary life. Something observable. The answer, as he said, naturally would be as the one who is served. Surely, Peter would know that. Peter owned his own business with John and James. They had service. Matthew was a tax collector, probably very wealthy. He had service. A lot of the disciples understood they had service. They knew that when the master came home, the servant, after his long day, before he did anything, he took care of his master and served him because he was the great. But Jesus is bringing a whole new twist. He's not bringing a new twist. The kingdom of God doesn't work the way the world works. And that is something that the disciples had to learn. Every true leader, every true Christian has to learn that the kingdom of God does not work by the principles of this world. Absolutely not. Not even close. At all. That's why when you look at the first first century church, and you look at the New Testament, you realize Jesus used nobodies. There were nobodies. There were uneducated Men, unlearned men. They were fishermen and tax collectors. They were sinners. The only really qualified one, maybe, would have been Paul. He was the only one whose mind was saturated in the scriptures. Everybody else was just nobodies. But that's the way the kingdom of God operates. But Jesus puts a new twist that only believers can understand. If you're a believer here, you'll understand this. It is the servant that is highly honored in the eyes of God. And we know because only God is great and everything that, and everyone that's created was created to serve. And listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. But we know that there is only one God, the Father who created everything, and we live in Him, and we live for Him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God has made everything, and through whom we have been given eternal life. Everything's created for God. Everything's created for His glory. Jesus shows them what true greatness is. To be a servant like Himself, who came to do one thing in His life. As we see in John chapter 4 clearly, that my only ambition, the sustenance of my life, Jesus says, what I eat, the food that I dwell on, is to do the will of the Father and to see it through. It drove Christ to the cross. This is a living parable of redemption taking place. The disciples are in it. They have no idea what's taking place. They're hearing all this teaching. They really don't understand that the man that fed 5,000, that the man that raised the dead, they have no idea that the man that cleansed the leper in hours was going to be betrayed, then rejected by the nation, crucified, and put in the grave. They had no idea. And besides that, they really had no idea that on the third day he was going to be raised from the dead. It's a living parable. But the death and resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ will put everything in focus soon. As of right now, they really have no idea. One thing is for certain, though, in the kingdom of God, it does not follow the structure and principles of growth that this world has. It just doesn't. 
And it's something every true leader has to learn. And this is not just informative for anybody who holds a position of leadership, but everybody who's in a Christian congregation has to know, and we'll get into it more into application of where we're going with this or what a leader is supposed to portray in his life or at least uh, characterize and define his life. The disciples had to learn the lessons of brokenness. Think about this. How do you think they felt after the resurrection? How do you think they felt after the receiving of the Holy Spirit? When they actually, I wonder if they looked at each other, probably didn't say a word and say, could you imagine? We were more concerned about who was the greatest. Could you imagine how they must have looked at each other? Probably didn't say a word. What a fool I was. What a fool. God walked amongst us and washed our feet. And I was, I thought I was better than you, Peter. Yeah, I thought I was better than you, John. And Matthew, what a loser he is. <laughs> because they were quarreling and bickering among themselves. So you must have thought as the years went on, how they must have really thought about this. And they did. And we should. We should take a look at our lives sometimes and say, how in the world did I ever think so highly and mighty of myself? How does God not crush me? How does God put up with me? How does God not give up on me? That makes a good leader. Hopefully you're singing that song. It makes a good Christian. The disciples had to learn the lessons of brokenness. They had to learn about the deep emotional and psychological brokenness that was going to take place in their life. Something only the Spirit of God can do. Their whole approach, the whole approach to life has drastically changed. It, they don't live for themselves no more. They live for God. And that's what Christians are supposed to do. And Christian leaders model that. And that is an important dynamic that we'll speak about in the weeks to come, and I'll, I'll close that in application. They are to learn that they are not to serve themselves, but to serve God the rest of their life. That is a healthy Christian characteristic. When we really know, when we can close our eyes and say, God, I am called to serve you the rest of my life. And again, it is the Christian leader that's supposed to model that in everything they do. The Christian leader is one who sees Christ's example clearly. And is overwhelmed with humility, with Christ's humility in giving himself. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8 9 in the New Living Translation. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you could become rich. That's what servants do. That's what leaders do. Leaders enrich other people's life. A parent is a leader. And a parent, a father, and a mother are called to enrich and protect their children's lives and prepare them for a life of prosperity of soul. That's what a parent is supposed to do. And to do that, a parent has to die. And that's what parents do. Parents die to their own ambitions. They die to their own dreams. And, and they find themselves staying up late at night praying and crying and, and doing everything they can to protect the child and, and, and bring up the child. Well, that's what Christian leaders do. 
they do the same thing. We're, we're parents. When it comes to application, it, it's pretty straightforward. The attitude of the self-greatness that the disciples had before the cru- crucifixion would over the years of their life just eat away at them and start to transform them and change them. If we all look at the things that God has forgiven in our life, some of the thought patterns we had, some of the, the ways we thought about ourselves, and then all of a sudden the years go on, and every time you come to church you hear more about the gospel, you hear more about Christ, you hear more about God, what He's done for us, what He's doing for us, what He's going to do for us, and then we start to think, who's great around here? Is it me or God? Why do people live in sin? Because they don't think God's all that great. Because if you did, you'd give up sin. You give it up. That's all. It's an exercise of faith. Why should I give it up? I'm, I'm great. I'm great. So much has to go with human pride and what we think about ourselves. And they think, well, you know, I can still do what I want to do because... Adam ate the fruit of the garden and I too can be like God and discern the difference between good and evil. I'll make a decision on what's good for my life. Not God, I will. I want to be the greatest. (coughs) They would end up becoming broken and humbled by Christ's selfless sacrifice of love. The picture we have of the Last Supper, a betrayal, a crucifixion, and this bickering amongst 11 men on who's going to be the greatest. And, and let me tell you exactly what's going on. At the Passover meal, you were invited to, or any meal, it would be probably a, a, a square table. And if you were invited... If you got to sit closer to the host, that means you were greater than everybody else. Do you remember what John's mother said about John James? Lord Jesus, granted that my sons will sit on your left and on your right in your kingdom. Why? Because it was a place of promise. It was a place of recognition. Look who's sitting next to the king. Look who's sitting next to the leader. It was a recognition. It was power. They would be recognized by somebody else in the group. They would stand above everybody else in the group. Isn't that like people to get the last word? To be the smartest in the room. To be the greatest. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so good. Oh, your preaching is all wonderful. Oh, this, oh, that, oh, this, and the other thing. You know, you're like, you're trying to stay humble, but you know, your ego's getting huge, and your, your head's swelling up, and you know, you're, oh, yeah, thank you, you know, I'm so humble. <laughs> but understand something. Jesus doesn't mind greatness. Jesus wants us to be great. God wants us to be great. He disqualifies what greatness is. And it's not what the world does. It's not about recognition. You want God to recognize you or you want people to recognize you. God. If you want God to recognize you as the saint just said, then we serve. Because that's who God's looking for. He's not looking for the all-stars. He's not looking for the home run hitters. God is looking for people who serve. 
That's who his eye is on. He doesn't say there's no one great but me around here. God says, oh, you want to be great? Then serve. Become like the younger. And what that means, it's a, uh, a Hebrew idiom, and it means to become less, to become unacknowledged, as nobody. Empty yourself of your great thoughts and become a nobody. And you'll be great in the kingdom of God. Do you know that God does His greatest work with nobodies? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he a carpenter? Who, who is this man that all of a sudden he's doing these great works? These great He's a nobody! This carpenter's a nobody! This is, isn't this family with us? This is the carpenter's son. He's nobody. Who? Do you know they were offended? Because he was a nobody doing great works? They were offended. They don't want a nobody serving over them. They wanted a somebody. And they got somebody. They got the son of God himself. The Bible is filled with humble yourself and God will what? Highly, highly exalt you. That's what leaders do. A leader is a person that's been trained by the Holy Spirit over many, many years. The pride and self-righteous that every leader had at one time, that every leader is still dealing with, every ounce of desire to be recognized, to be put under the blood of Christ, is being crushed out of them. Understand something. Someone who God is using, that's... Leaders are not born. They're made by the Holy Spirit. They're a gift, a grace of God to the church. And if God raises up leaders because they sat under leadership. They're broken on the inside. A leader is fit, especially, listen, for a unique service. To deal with weak people. God's people. God's sheep. To protect them. And to grow them. And to nurture them. And never, ever to exploit God's people. And the only remedy is God's grace for these weak people. God's patience. God's mercy. God's compassion. God's forgiveness. But this grace, understand this grace that God's people so desperately need cannot be administrated through legalistic, self-righteous leaders who think highly of themselves. It doesn't work. The grace of God doesn't flow through a self-righteous, self-exalting, self-glorifying heart. It only flows through broken human beings. Anyone who wants to be great, Jesus says it, will be brought down low. For those who humble themselves will be greatly exalted. Unlike the world leaders, as I said earlier, 
usually have a formal, distant relationship, a very sort of uh, uh, business-like relationship. It's not up and close. It's not eyeball to eyeball. It's not heart to heart. It's not how's your life, how's your wife, how's your kids, how, what's going on in your life. But the Christian relationship, the leadership with the Christian congregation is one of a father or a mother. It's a caring, nurturing relationship that's built up over many, many years and sometimes even decades. These attributes that leaders have that God breaks into them and, 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 and uh, builds them and uh, makes them because leaders in the Christian church are not born. They're made by the Holy Spirit. Understand something, as I said before, that is a grace of God to the church. And it's important about that because speaking for my own life, the leaders that God has put in my life, these are the ones that walk the mile. They walk the Christian life. They had answers for me. When I was fighting the flesh, when I was fighting Satan, when I was fighting the temptations of this world, I needed someone who walked that minefield. I needed someone who, not, not someone who saved just two years, and there's nothing, we all, gotta get, we all have to grow up, but somebody who has shown a great love for Christ, who has picked up the cross, who has followed the Lord Jesus Christ, and has not compromised their life, that is the one that God's going to use to speak life into us. And I thank God that He gave leaders in my life to speak that way to me. Because you're going to find out if you're a Christian here, you will find yourself at a lot of crossroads at life. A lot of crossroads. I wish I could tell you you're going to have one crossroad in your life. No. You're going to have many. When you get married, you're going to have many more. When you have kids, you're going to have many more. When you lose your job, you're going to have others. When someone dies, you're going to have others. When someone sits, you're going to have others. And you have to know, how do I remain faithful to God in the worst times of my life? You want to do that on your own? Go right ahead. But God has supplied Christian leadership. We're going to speak about this in the weeks to come about this dynamic of God's grace and leadership as he gives to the church. Father, we thank you, Lord, for every good and perfect gift that comes from above. We thank you, God, that you do raise up men and women to speak life into your congregation. Mothers and fathers of the faith, Father God, pastors and, and teachers, Father God, and elders, Lord God, and, and the mature in the church, Father God, that can help me restoring power to those who are caught in a trespass, those who are caught in forks in the roads, those who are caught in detours and stop signs of their life, Father God. And they know that they're on a, a journey, Father God, but they, they haven't walked this part of the road yet. And you raise up leadership for us, Father God, to admonish us, to encourage us, to discipline us, correct us, and to teach us, Father. God, let this relationship between leaders and your people, Father God, thrive so we do it with joy and not with groaning in Christ.